Well, Father, we come before you just in awe of your glory and splendor on display this morning in a driving rainstorm. And Lord, as we just think about the greatness of who you are and what you have done, uh, I pray that it will lead us to worship and that this message will help us to understand how you receive worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A lot of times uh, when I talk to people about Flint Hills Bible Church, I might come across somebody who might be interested in checking it out. And one of the questions I receive is, how's the worship at your church? You guys ever gotten that question? And usually what they mean by that is, how was the music, right? There's a, there's a deep association between worship and music, which, which makes sense. Uh, it's, you know, worship is when we sing about holy things. Well, this past week I read an interesting uh, book review. Uh, I haven't read the book, but the book review um, kind of whet my appetite for it. About a sociologist who kind of studied the modern worship movement. And for those of you who have been Christian since the 90s, you, like me, have probably noticed somewhat of a change in what is played on the radio. It used to be with contemporary Christian music, we would hear songs sung about Jesus. But now, most of the songs are sung to Jesus. There's kind of a modern worship movement where most of the media is not only played on the radio, but designed to be played in churches as as well. And this has has a powerful impact on the evangelical subculture, you know, the people who drive the worship music. And it's become kind of critical in somebody's church-choosing rubric. Well, when the social sociologists, um, you know, interviewed many people in different concerts and churches about what is it that really draws them to certain kinds of worship music, uh, some of them talked about how the worship experience is important because it gives them a personal encounter with God during congregational singing. Others talk about having a worship fix or being a worship junkie, right? They use worship as a means of getting some sort of spiritual high. And and the church is not the only venue for this. Uh, You know, there's uh, a, a common phenomenon is the worship concert where uber talented musicians get together with professional lighting and staging and they lead uh, kind of a eclectic congregation gathered in a concert hall in an hour and a half session of praise and worship. And, and they perform these songs that are sung on YouTube, and, and these are spectacles to watch. Uh, you have people who are filled with emotion. They are, they are charged. They are participating in this worship music And then, many churches try to replicate that to lackluster results, right? That is the the modern worship music. And and I don't want you to um, think, well, here's Dave, and the lesson's going to be, we're going to sing bland worship and you're going to like it, right? Nor do I want to dampen any meaningful worship experience that you had. But when people say, how's the worship at the church, I think it kind of uh, betrays maybe a a misunderstanding on what is worship, right? Worship is not an experience for you to receive. Uh, It's an action that you give. Uh, 
And there are many ways that we kind of misunderstand worship where this concept of worship is, is too small. I talked to a couple young men and their idea of worship was uh, reading the Bible and singing songs. That's worship. But doing your homework is not worship. Working is not worship. But, but worship has a, bigger, uh, has a bigger venue where you can actually worship God in all of life. In fact, a helpful definition of worship I came up with I didn't come up with, I discovered, is by Bob Coughlin in his book, Worship Matters. And I'm going to say this definition twice, out of mercy for you note takers, okay? He writes, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to a self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say it again. Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can do that beyond singing, right? You look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You can eat and worship. You can drink and worship. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So as you are, I don't know, assembling Big Macs at McDonald's, as you are working the line at Simmons, as you are teaching your classroom, you can actually worship God in that activity as well. And you also worship when you sing. I mean, worship is basically living all of life like God is worthy. And so we come to this passage today, and this has kind of been an interesting time to go through these Christmas passages when it's not Christmas. And so I've been preaching them, not trying to bring Christmas into May. I mean, Christmas needs its own time. But I think when you look at this passage that we're about to go to, one of the prevailing themes is that of worship. It's a response of the shepherds, the angels, Mary, and implicitly Joseph to the revelation that a Messiah has been born. So with that in mind, look at the themes of worship as I read through this passage. It's Luke 2, 8 through 20. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Right? So you see the worshipers. You see the angels, the shepherds, Mary, and implicitly Joseph, who was a participant in having him be circumcised. And as we go through this, I you know, have a little rubric here of, of different things we learn about worship. We see truthful worship that is centered on God's revelation. Thoughtful worship that there is a, a meditation that is going on. They are thinking through it, especially Mary. Joyful worship, the response of the shepherds, and then obedient worship as they are fulfilling the command that God gave them to circumcise the Son. And in all of this, you see that worship is more than just a musical experience. It is a life that is centered on the greatness of God in response to a self-revelation. Worship is not something you receive, right? The worship experience is not the point of worship. The point of worship is to give glory to God, and it's the response that we have to the truth of God. And that's what we're going to see in this first part, truthful worship. And what we're going to do is I'm going to just kind of paint the picture for you first, and then we're going to look at some reflections on how this relates to worship. So look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now imagine, if you will, what it would be like to be a shepherd around the hills of Bethlehem at that time. You are up in the night watch, counting sheep, and trying not to sleep. A very difficult problem, right? In the distance, you hear a wolf howling, and you kind of gauge how far it is and decide that your flock is safe, and you're looking over this flock, which is a very special flock. You see, the rabbis had a law that if you were to pastor sheep this close to Bethlehem, they can only have one purpose, and that is to be a sacrifice at one of the great feasts of Israel. And it's kind of ironic that you, a rotten-toothed shepherd, who's despised by everyone, are the ones who are overlooking this special flock. You see, shepherds were a despised occupation. Now, there is that business about the Lord is my shepherd and David being a shepherd, but the rabbinical law at the time considered being a shepherd an unclean profession because you had to work on the Sabbath. And so how could you be holy? You are a filthy, rotten-toothed shepherd who has a reputation. Shepherds were often known to confuse the term mine and thine. In addition, uh, their testimony was not revealable in court. You actually saw a landowner uh, take one of the sheep that was not part of his flock and integrate it into his own. You told the authorities, but what do you know? Your word versus a landowner, well, yours is uh, discounted. So here you are at night, your shift is over, you wake up another shepherd to take your place. 
And in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Right? In, in the night, you see a spectacle. A ray of light begins to expand, and the darkness is now overcome by light. And not just like daylight, we're talking a pure light. This is nothing else but the glory of God. You think about Moses who came down from Mount Sinai and and your forefathers asked him to cover his face because he had this residual light from being in the presence of the glory of God. Well, that is what you are seeing here and you are terrified. But then a strong, rich voice tells you, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This messenger who was in the presence of God tells you, don't be afraid. I'm actually giving you some good news. And this is the good news. This good news is going to be for all people. Now, to a Jew, they were convinced that God only had a special love for them. On account of the promise to Abraham, he promised to make them a a great nation. But that promise that set them apart had a purpose. They were to be a great nation so that all the peoples may be blessed. And part of the means of this blessing will be that a Savior has been born. And those are magic words to any Jew during that time. You see, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. There was forced movement as a census was decreed. Everyone was inconvenienced by the whims of a Gentile emperor who lived 2,000 miles away. This is normal for the Jews. They've always been an oppressed people. You think about Moses and the people of Israel who were oppressed by the Pharaoh. They always hoped for a savior, and there was a belief that a savior would come from the line of David. And that's why when they say, in the city of David, a savior, in Bethlehem, where David came from, there will be someone from David's line who will come and rescue his people, and this person is Christ the Lord. This is a kingly announcement. An angel is telling the shepherds that your Messiah, your Savior, your Deliverer for all these people has just been born. And then he offers a sign. And this is an interesting sign. A lot of times when you think about signs, you Uh, You think about a, I don't know, a staff turning into a snake or a shadow moving backwards. But this is an interesting sign. This is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What? Well, what would be the expectation of a Davidic king being born? He wouldn't be born in a peasant home. He'd be born in a palace. 
He wouldn't be lying in a manger. He would be lying in choice bedding. He wouldn't be wrapped in swaddling cloths. He would be wrapped in a fine linen garment. But in this case, this is a humble king that is approachable. And it doesn't matter if you are a filthy, gap-toothed shepherd. You are welcome to be in his presence. I mean, if you take a step back, I mean, this is an amazing announcement, isn't it? This is God's self-revelation that a Messiah has just been born. And this is augmented by an act of worship. The angel is no longer alone in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host praising God, there's the worship, and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we don't know if this was a song or a chant. I tend to think it was musical in nature, but it's rich with meaning. It begins with glory to God in the highest, right? Now, that word glory, it comes from a Hebrew word, kabod, which means weight. If something is weighty, it has an extra importance to it. And in a day and age where they would often uh, measure gold or measure commodities, the heavier something was, the more valuable it was. And so when you talk about this term glory, it means that God is weighty, he is heavy, he is precious, he is distinct, there is no one like him. That's why God surrounds himself in light. It conveys that purity, that heaviness, that weightiness. There is no one like him. He deserves all glory. And then as we continue to read, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, for those of you who had the King James or grew up listening to the King James, it was peace, goodwill, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Well, that's not necessarily part of the original text. It is on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is an offer of peace to people to whom he is pleased. It's a continuation of the theme of John the Baptist where he will, according to Luke 179, give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's being promised is that this Messiah will bring everlasting peace. Now, in 1914, during the Great World War, there was an interesting event that happened on Christmas Day. German and British soldiers began to exchange holiday greetings to one another. And then on Christmas Day, they decided to call a truce. And they actually began to play a game of soccer with each other, as well as exchange gifts. But when it was over, it was back to war. In fact, the high command of both sides was pretty upset about this because they wanted them to hate each other. But you know, that was just the truce. That was just one day of peace. What God is offering here through this born king is peace, permanent reconciliation. See, Jesus did not come to create a ceasefire with God, but peace with God. We read in Romans 5.10, 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now are we reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Reconciliation means that God is no longer angry with you. Now, some of you are thinking, I never knew God was angry with me, right? Doesn't God love everybody? Well, in a general sense, (laughs) out of the mouth of babes, He does in a general sense. Got to be careful with rhetorical questions. But in a general sense, he does. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You know, he has his common grace given to everyone. But the fact is, when people sin against God, it is an act of rebellion. You know, they have chosen to push God away, and his righteous wrath uh, is rightly aimed at them. Even though people um, don't see it or experience it in this life, they will in the life to come. But God, in His mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And when He was on that cross, that righteous wrath that was intended uh, for you was actually placed upon Him. He died in your place. And then God raised Him from the dead so that all who believe in Him can be reconciled and have, have peace with God. And so what's really interesting is this concept of of how you get this peace with God is to become a surrendered soul. See, fundamentally what sin is, it's a rejection of God and a rejection of His reign. It is the belief that we are the center of all good and glory, right? When Eve took the forbidden fruit, she did so because, well, who is God to tell me what to do and who is God to tell me how to live and why do I need God to help me distinguish between good and evil? I'll take this fruit and be able to do it myself, right? It's life independent of God. And so when you look at it, it's, it's really this concept of, of self-worship, of believing that all glory should rightly be channeled to me, right? And isn't that kind of the spirit of this age? It is, right? It is the spirit of this age. He, he kind of likes answering my questions. Like I need, need to be careful in asking some. But we do have a, we have a preening selfie culture where people are infatuated with themselves. They want other people to be infatuated with them. But it's not just for the people who are on Instagram who are guilty of this. I mean, how many of you feel slighted when people don't give you the respect you believe you deserve? Or might feel jealous that somebody gets more attention than you. Envious of other people's abilities. I mean, even that is a certain amount of coveting where you want glory for yourself. You want praise and recognition for yourself. And when that is your mindset, you're at odds with the Lord. Because according to um, Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Ultimately, the heart of worship is a surrender of a search for glory and a demand for glory and a decision to give all glory and honor to the Lord. Luke 9, 23 through 24, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, will save it. Right? When you are willing to renounce yourself glory and your desire to live for yourself, there is peace with God. That's the promise. And, and these angels, I mean, their whole life has been devoted to glorifying the Lord. They never knew a time in their existence where that was not the case. They were unfallen. And they are rejoicing that God is going to receive more glory as eternal purposes and plans are coming forward. Through Christ, he's going to redeem the elect. Through Christ, he will procure more worshipers for him. And then the story goes on in verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us, right? After hearing about this good news, they wanted to see it for themselves, and so they made their way to Bethlehem to see the sign, to see the child. They were moved to worship by this revelation of God's truth. Now, in this... Um, we're going to reflect on the theme now of worship. You see that it was God's truth and the response to God's truth that led the angels to sing their song, uh, assuming that they did sing. Yeah, there was music incorporated into this event where they sing glory to God in the highest. And this has caused me to think a little bit about um, just the purpose of music. I mean, music is often associated with worship. You see it in the Psalms. Uh, it is commanded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a reason why God made music, right? Music helps stir the emotions, right? If you ever watch an old movie, sometimes you notice that there is no soundtrack, and so you're not quite sure how you should feel. And so movie soundtracks kind of indicate that, oh, I should be concerned right now. Oh, this is sad. Oh, this is actually happy and triumphant because of the building music. And this can be the issue. You see, music can uh, impact your emotions, but it can't change your heart. The only thing that can change your heart is God's revelation. Only Scripture can change your heart. What music can do is it can help bring out what's in your heart. Does that make sense? Music is like salt on meat. Steak is great, but a little bit of rubbing salt brings out the flavor. Now the problem with some of the modern worship is it can be so dominated by salt that you can't taste the meat anymore. I was at a venue a while ago and listening to a, a worship song and this worship song, its chorus consisted of saying amen 12 times. And the worship leaders added their own amen, amen, amen with it. I mean, there's like 40 amens all in a row. Apparently, the writers weren't familiar with the law of diminishing returns. I was bored after seven amens, right? And it was a case where it wasn't even though the song was scriptural, 
The emphasis on the song was to generate a, a feeling and a response, not so much shaping our hearts and our minds and helping us understand God's revelation. Remember, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to His self-revelation. And so when the angels sing, they're singing in response to God's great truth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Right? They're celebrating God's D-Day, that God is coming to earth by sending His Son to restore His kingdom. See, truthful worship is a response to the truth of God. But not just, you know, it's not just the truth, it's also the thoughts that are associated with the truth that help stimulate worship. So we're going to move on to the next passage in verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And so these shepherds dutifully go to Bethlehem, and the whole community is there. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, the popular perception of, of Mary and Joseph being greeted by a hostile Bethlehem, being told that there's no room at the inn, being forced into a stable was probably not true. In that day and age, hospitality was part of what you do and, and who you are. It would be an act of civic disgrace if they were to reject a young family, let alone a pregnant woman. And if you've ever gone to the Middle East or spent time with Middle Easterners, they're some of the most hospitable people on the planet. They will not eat a bite to make sure that you're stuffed. And so it's likely that they were welcomed and the fact that they were in a manger was simply because they were in the, well, maybe the equivalent of a garage that was cleared out, neatened up for them, so that they could have a place to stay. The village midwife would have come, helped deliver the baby, and here they are, all as a community celebrating the birth of this child, when the shepherds come in. And, and this would have been unusual. Why did these shepherds leave their flocks right, which would have been an occupational hazard, to greet this young child. And they begin to tell all about, you know, we were, we were up in the middle of the night and some angels appeared and they told us that there's going to be a baby born in this town who would be lying in a manger and here he is. And what's Mary's response? But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. Now that word treasure, it means to bury, right? Back in that day and age, before you had a safety deposit box, right? They would actually dig holes in the ground to conceal their possessions. And so the idea is that Mary is burying this truth in her heart. She is guarding it, it is precious, she is storing it up. She's pondering everything that the angels told these shepherds. That a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and peace among men with whom he is well pleased. What does all of that mean? And the fact that we know about this story indicates that Mary was able to convey it perfectly to Luke for our enjoyment and our edification. 
She thought deeply about what just happened. Now remember, worship is a response to God's revelation. And the mind is engaged in this act of worship. A number of years ago, I, I was sent a worship video. It was one of those Maranatha praise videos. I mean, go back to the 90s. You know, the dimensions were different. The lighting was different. The, it, it was pretty epic. But it was a rendition of a mighty fortress. And there's a close-up of this guy when the line is sung, his craft and power are great. And he's doing the praise pump, right? His, his craft and power are great. Do you know what the next line of that song is? And armed with cruel hate. That's actually the part of a mighty fortress that is talking about Satan. And he's doing the praise pump with his craft and power are great. He was in the moment. <laughs> I don't know if he understood what he was actually doing. And, and he wasn't thinking that that's not the time to do the praise pump in a mighty fortress is our God. Now, I will admit I have been guilty when I've been preoccupied with my sermon of singing the men's and the women's parts of certain praise songs. <laughs> right? Anybody else do that? Okay, maybe. Okay, thank you. Thank you. My little friend over here didn't say he did. <laughs> but you know, the point of it is not to just sing for singing's sake, right? We are singing in response to God's revelation, and part of that is to allow that to imprint our heart, and it does so through our minds. I mean, one of the great commands of Scripture is Colossians 3.1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, right? It is intentionally thinking thoughts and great thoughts about God, and that changes and transforms your behavior to become a better worshiper, so to speak, right? So worship is rooted in truth. It's a thoughtful engagement with truth, but there's also an element of joy, which we see in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And so the shepherds left their flocks, saw the baby, and then they returned. And the response is to glorify and praise God. Yeah, they have been part of a miraculous event. And there is a, there's a reversal here, right? Where you have the, a humble king whose birth is announced by unclean shepherds. Their testimony wasn't valid in court, but God gives them a testimony to say to the community. They watched over the Passover sheep but in the manger was the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. It was a great reversal. They were part of something great. They beheld the wonder and the majesty of God and they walked away singing, praising and glorifying and praising God, right? It's, there's a sense of joy. And joy often accompanies worship. Psalm 66, 2, sing the glory of his name and give to him glorious praise. 
One of my children pointed out a number of years ago that when I'm in a good mood, I, I sing. It's not pretty, but my family tolerates it because they know I'm in a good mood. Psalm 106, 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to you and your name and glory in your praise. Not only is there singing associated with joy, there's thankfulness. Thankful people are happy people. They're easily pleased. And I've seen people go through soul-crushing trials. And it's amazing to see how they will um, just give thanks for all the little tiny blessings uh, in their lives. You know, there is a sense of gratitude, thankfulness, and joy that permeates praise. Even when life seems to be set against you, the revelation of God in any form will lead to hope, joy, and gratitude, and praise. And then we have the final manifestation of worship. Luke 2.21 And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So in the midst of all this praising, there was another matter to attend to, and that was the rite of circumcision. We talked about this with John the Baptist, but circumcision was more than just a rite of passage. Um, it was a sign of the covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham that through his line, all the nations would be blessed. Therefore, he sanctified the means of procreation as a sign that this would continue on to all the biological descendants of Abraham. And it was commanded in Leviticus 12.3, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And so Joseph, was likely the one who did it, went up to the temple, circumcised Jesus in obedience to the law. You see, you can talk a lot about a worship experience and worshiping and praising God, but ultimately, what's the greatest act of worship and praise? John 15, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? Worship is most expressed in obedience. The angels obeyed God's command to tell the shepherds. The shepherds obeyed the angels' command to greet the king. Joseph and Mary obeyed God's command to circumcise their son. All that to say, when you are obedient, that is an act of worship. All this to say, worship is more than music, right? Christian worship is a response of God's redeemed people to His self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when someone asks how to worship at your church, or if that's a question that you're asking, now, this would be my challenge to you. Are you more focused on getting the worship experience or giving worship to God? Does that make sense? If people say, I need to have this worship experience so I can feel spiritual, is that really about giving glory to God or using this act of giving glory to God to get something for yourself. See, for a church to have good worship means that the church consists of surrendered souls. 
It means that it is a, a church that is aware of the greatness of God through the faithful proclamation of His revelation. Right? The point of worship is not to please the audience in the pew. Right? The point of worship is to please the audience in heaven. So if people want to know how is the worship at a church, you look at the people. Are these people living lives of worship? Do they understand that their life has been consecrated to God? Do they live out the truth of Romans 12, 1 through 2? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so if there are transformed people who are being transformed into worshipers of God, if you were to ask God, how's the worship at that church? He would say, it's excellent. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am thankful for the glimpses you've given us of, of worship. And I pray that you will help us to understand that worship is more than singing. Worship is an activity and an action that dominates all of life. It is living our lives in response to the great truth of who you are. And Father, if there's anyone here on the outside looking in who has not become a dedicated worshiper, I pray that you will do a work in their life to move them to that point so that when they do sing, they don't just sing, they sing to you. And when they sing these wonderful lyrics, they don't just think about the song, they think about you that you'll help our hearts to be dedicated to you. We thank you for just the great truth that we read about in this passage, that a Savior has been born, that through this Savior we can have peace with God, and I pray that will be our heart's desire as well, and that thought alone will lead us to worship in the coming week. I pray for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.